Hey everyone, it is so great seeing you. I'm pretty excited and honored and humbled to be sitting down with our next Bet On You radio guest. His name is Stephen Prespo. And you are here because you know who he is. You've probably read Gates of Fire, Legend of Bagger Vance, The War of Art, which is probably one of the best book titles I could possibly imagine. And he's got a new book out. It's called Government Cheese. I love it. And it's a memoir and I can't wait for you to hear it. And I'm not going to delay introducing Stephen any longer. Stephen, it is so great to see you here today. Oh, thanks for having me, Angie. It's great to be with you this morning. Yeah, you're quite the press junket lately. So you've been all over the place talking about your book. Do you enjoy that part of the job of the creative process? Actually, uh, no, but <laughs> <laughs> you know, these days, uh, if, if you're a writer or any kind of you know creative person getting out like a movie or the word out about a movie that you've done, you definitely do have to kind of get on the road and get out there. And, uh, you know, I always think of it as like, particularly in a fiction book where you have characters that you've written that they can't speak for themselves. So you, the writer have to do that, you know, and, and if they're going to have their moment in the sun, you have to get out there and do it. But, uh, I'm basically an introvert. I'd rather, you know, be at home in my room working, but, uh, <laughs> your monkish existence, you gotta get out and get on the road. Absolutely. Well, I am delighted that you chose to be here today. And one of the things I do with my program is really showcase to people out there who have dreams, ambitions, aspirations that they can achieve because everybody has to start from somewhere. And I'd love to hear your background story about where you started from. We were talking a little bit in advance that you're from New York, but talk to me a little bit about growing up in New York and what your life was like. Ah. Well, I grew up in just sort of a regular middle-class family in the suburbs of New York and in the city. Um, but the sort of, in terms of following your dream type of thing, as uh, I think I have uh, like 21 or 22 books now published, but I didn't get the first one published till I was 52 years old. And I spent like, from the time I originally quit a job, I had a job in advertising in New York until the time I quit the job to write, to try to write a book until the time I got a book published was 27 years. So, uh, I'm kind of one of those overnight successes that only took, you know, <laughs> two generations to, to, to happen. So, uh, if I can do it, anybody can do it. You can. No, absolutely. And that I imagine within that 27 year process, there was a lot of anguish, a lot of frustration, a lot of heartache, a lot of, and I think you write a lot about it in your memoir, a lot of shame, a lot of embarrassment. Can you talk a little bit about that? Because that was the thing in the book that just pulled me in. I wanted to give you a hug like several different times while reading <laughs> it. Just like, it's going to be okay, Stephen. We're going to get through. <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, um, I'm not even sure where to start or what to say, but just that, uh, for me, I sort of, my, my first, I quit a job to try to write a book. Mm -hmm. I was a young married guy, you know, with a new wife and my wife supported me for like a two years to do this book. And, uh, when I got to the end of it, I just totally choked, you know, I, I couldn't finish it. I just blew it up. I blew my marriage up. Um, just because, uh, I just didn't have the guts to, to actually put something out there and see what response it, it got. So that sort of plunged me into a couple of decades of kind of, of shame in the sense of 
you know, I felt like I'd ruined my wife's life. I'd certainly screwed my life up. And, uh, you know, I wound up kind of on the road working many, many jobs and that kind of thing. And shame kind of was sort of the overall emotion there. I felt like I, uh, I just had to redeem myself somehow, you know, and I felt like the only way I could do that was to finally write something that was worth something. So that kind of 20, you know, something publishable because the, the first book I took a crack at was just terrible, you know, not even worthy of lighting, you know, a fire with. Um, so um, that was kind of the over overriding emotion through that whole time, just a desire to, to, uh, to um, redeem myself from this, uh, you know, initial fiasco. I'd be curious from you, like you talk about the very first book, again, you quit your job to follow your passion and follow your dream. Do you find that it's for most writers who are going out there to do their first book, it's easy to get started, but it's that finishing part that really makes a lot of people lose steam, lose momentum or pull back. I'd love to hear from your perspective because um, I know you mentor a lot of writers. It's a, great, it's a great question. I certainly think that, uh, you know, if, if you or I decided that we wanted to be a concert pianist or a brain surgeon, we would kind of immediately think, oh, well, I've got to put in 14, 15 years full time, right? Going to school, studying, playing the piano, da, 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 right? But if we think that we want to be a writer, we just figure, oh, that's a piece of cake. You know, what is there to it? We can type, we can do that. But it's like anything else, any creative thing. If you want to be a dancer, if you want to be a singer, if you want to be a musician, you know, if you want to be a filmmaker, it's a long apprenticeship. And like for me, when I first started to do that, I was just an idiot to think, you know, oh, I can just plunge right in and do it. Um, so I'm, I'm not sure if people like me falter at the finish line, but I think a lot of times people bite off more than they can chew or they really think, oh, this is going to be easy. And suddenly they find it ain't easy at all. You know, it's not so much the craft of writing or any creative art as it is kind of the mindset, which you talk about and bet on you and the whole theme of what you're talking about, the risk taking of how do you how do you have the guts to start? How do you have the guts to continue through the middle where it's really boring and difficult and tedious? And then when you get to the end, how do you have the guts to really put it out there, whatever it is? And so those are the skills that they, you might call them soft skills, but I think they're really hard skills. And nobody teaches you those skills, you know? I mean, I know you were a Marine, Angie, and they teach you a lot of stuff about um, discipline and so on and so forth. But they don't teach you self-discipline. They teach the discipline is imposed from the outside. So learning those kind of soft skills of self-discipline, self-reinforcement, self-validation—that's the thing that that's really kind of separates the the men from the boys. If you'll forgive the gender. No, I don't mind the gender. No, I hear you. It's so true. It's different, like in the Marine Corps, because they do impose a lot of rules, structures, you know policies, procedures, you better do this and or this is going to happen and it's not going to be good. But <laughs> then you leave the Marine Corps and you realize, oh, crap, it's now on me and I have to do it. Nobody's telling me to do it, but I need to do that. I want to go back to the Marine Corps because you're a Marine, too. Um, I'd love to hear what that experience meant for you because you were in the um, Marine Reserves. Yeah, correct? I was a reservist 
you know, during the Vietnam War, mm-hmm. and I definitely did not want to go to Vietnam. So I joined yeah, I the reserves, understand. hoping that, uh, you know, they wouldn't call us up. And I was an infantryman, 0311, mm-hmm. and, um, but they never called my unit up. So I served my six years and, and, uh, and, uh, and got out. But it certainly was, uh, you know, in the, in the moment, I didn't realize what a deep impression it was making on me. The whole thing, you know, boot camp training and then, you know, the, the actual Marine Corps. Um, but I found in later years that I drew on that experience all the time, you know, making the switch from externally imposed discipline to self-discipline. That was the real sort of mind shift that, uh, you know, we all have to make if we're going to be individual entrepreneurs one way or another. I'd love to go back and talk about something that you wrote in Government Cheese because it, it sparked the discipline to pursue your creative pursuits. It was a dream that you had about, so you're at a really bad place in your life, basically, was what you were describing in the book. And you had a dream that was enlightening for you, a vision of yourself that was more put together and composed. Can you talk about that? Are you talking about the dream with my boots shining themselves and stuff? Yeah. <laughs> exactly. That's exactly uh, the one. First of all, I'm really a big believer in dreams and paying attention to dreams. And I really feel that it's it's uh, our capital S self, our deeper self, our unconscious, communicating with us and guiding us. And uh, so I'm, I'm a big believer in that. But this particular dream, I was... I was living in a halfway house in, um, in a basement room for like 15 bucks a month in uh, Durham, North Carolina. I had just been fired from a job driving little trucks and had just started another job. And I was just, uh, and had just, you know, left my wife and blah, blah, blah. I was really at the bottom of the barrel. And I had a dream where I came home to my little basement room and my shirts had all folded themselves very neatly in, into the drawer and my boots had all shined themselves and set themselves up, you know, exactly just like in the Marine Corps at a 45 degree angle, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, and um, somehow when I woke up from the dream, I, conc- I, I concluded that what it meant was that I had ambition, that I actually wanted to succeed and I wanted to accomplish something. And at that time in my life, that was sort of, first of all, it seemed completely impossible. But also, I had I kind of came out of the 60s where the point of view was um, if you were com- if you had ambition, that was like a bad thing because you wanted that meant that you were trying to put your friends down, put other people down and get above them somehow. Right. Mm -hmm. And so the whole ethic at that time was we're all brothers and sisters. We're all equal, da, 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 that kind of thing. So the idea that I had ambition, number one, and also that that was a good thing, that that was okay. That was kind of a real breakthrough for me. You know, it's like what you talk about in your, in your book, Angie, you know, that the idea that it's okay to have a dream and you're not betraying your brothers and sisters by wanting to, to live out your dream, whatever it is. And 
that really spark for you then. I'd love to talk a little bit about the disciplines that launched with you because I was fascinated by all the different works you were reading as you were going through the process of your writing, of really adhering and becoming really gritty towards your aspirations for a writer. I was amazed. Like you talk about all the different influences, you know, from Thucydides and Carl Jung and that time in your life. And just if you could talk about just your process for developing those disciplines and habits, I'd love to hear that. Um, well, at a, at a little later stage mm -hmm. there, um, I actually had saved up a, some money 2,700 bucks that I was going to last me a year, actually lasted me two years. And, and I moved into a little town in Northern California where I could, I rented a little house that I could afford. And I, I plunged in and actually tried to, okay, this is a book I'm going to finish, right? Couldn't finish the first one. Now I'm going to finish this one. And I had a friend and a mentor that I used to have breakfast with every morning or coffee with every morning, who was a writer. His name is Paul Rink. And he sort of told me, among other things, there are certain books you got to read, Steve, if you want to be a writer. You have to know, you have to read Hemingway, you have to read Steinbeck, you have to read the Russians, you have to read Dostoevsky, you have to read Tolstoy, you have to read the Greeks, you have to read certain female writers, you know, you have to, you know, you have to read a whole canon of American writers, Melville, Faulkner, Fitzgerald, all those kind of things. Um, the canon, you know, C-A-N-O-N. And, um, and he just sort of cracked the whip over me. And I, and I kind of realized, you know, he's absolutely right. If I want to be a writer, I have to know, I have to know certain things, you know? And then later on, when uh, I, I got, uh, I went, I moved to Hollywood and started a career as a screenwriter after I'd failed again a few more times trying to get books published. And the same thing sort of happened there where I had another kind of mentor, a partner that I worked with. Mm -hmm. And in the movie world, he said, you got to know these movies. You got to have seen Battleship Potemkin. You've got to see The Godfather, Chinatown, on and on and on and on. Films noir, foreign movies, French movies. You, you have to know these things. And also in... I'm probably rambling on, Angie, more than no, you. No, I'm fascinated. So keep rambling. You're you're rambling. It's but, very um, fascinating. You know, like in in Hollywood, if you're let's say you're trying to you've written a screenplay, and you're trying to sell it, and uh, you'll be in various meetings with executives at studios. You know, or you're hoping that they're going to finance something, and they will throw out you know reference to a certain movie. You know. Um, they'll mention a scene in Out of the Past with Robert Mitchum and Jane Greer. And you immediately go, or at least me, I go, what the hell is that? <laughs> and, you know, I never, never heard, heard of it. You know? And they know that you've never heard of it and you look like an idiot, you know? So you definitely have, I, you would come out of those meetings and you go, oh my God, I've got to, you know, I got to bone up on these movies, you know? And this was in the days of Blockbuster, you know? So I would just go to the video store and just spread movie after movie after movie and, uh, just learn, learn the craft, you know, imbibe the craft. Well, I um, loved reading when you were talking about starting writing that all these literary devices and inciting incidents and developing characters, those weren't concepts that were, you know, top of mind or even that you were very aware of. You just started writing. And that yeah. gave me so much hope for particularly, I write nonfiction, but the idea of writing fiction, like, oh, I can just start without knowing these things and I got to learn them eventually, but I can just start anywhere. 
That's awesome. Well, it's really, it's really stupid. I mean, I really was an idiot to do that. I mean, it's like, again, it's, it's like we were talking about being a concert. If you're going to be a concert pianist, you say to yourself, well, I have to study Rachmaninoff. I have to practice, you know, Chopin and Haydn. I got to learn these. You know that, right? Mm -hmm. But for me as a writer, I thought, well, I don't need to learn anything. I'll just start, just do it, you know? But then, of course, you realize you don't know anything and you are clueless and you're going nowhere. You know, what you're writing is no good. And uh, so eventually you do sort of realize I better learn some of this craft that uh, there is a, there is such a thing as a story. And there are such things as the principles of storytelling. And you better learn them. I love that. Well, I was thinking of the idea, though, just, you know, if you've got this motivation, get the discipline. And then get the inspiration and the knowledge and like letting all those things work together and then realizing what it is that you really don't know and going back into it. But I love it. It is. It's like the craft. If you want to do anything, you really have to study the yeah. time. And there are sort of like, I remember, uh, I don't know if any of our listeners have heard of a guy named Robert McKee, but he is a kind of a famous guru of screenwriting and he does uh, these um like uh, Story. Friday, right. Saturday, Sunday, Monday uh, or, um, sessions, you know, uh, intensive things. And he, um, you know, teaches the, the craft. And I can remember taking one of his classes and uh, and he was talking about the inciting incident, which I which is the moment in a movie or a novel when the story really starts. Like before that, there might be a little section of setup. But then there'll be a scene that actually the story really starts with that scene. Like as an example, in the original Rocky, if you remember that, you know, there was a whole kind of start where you sort of see Rocky's world in Philadelphia. He's kind of a bum. He breaks knuckles for a mafia guy on the street. Everybody, you know, he goes to the gym and they kick him out of his locker. It's, and that's all sort of set up. Then comes a moment when Apollo Creed, the champion, comes to town, he's going to fight some fighter, that fighter gets hurt, and Apollo says, I'm going to give some chump a chance to fight me, and he picks Rocky out of this book of fighters, right? He says, I'm going to give this chump, the Italian stallion, a chance to fight me, and that's the inciting incident, right? Mm -hmm. That's the moment when the movie really starts, and if we're sitting in the audience, we go, ooh, this is great, oh, they're going to fight, he's going to fight the champ, you know? So, I remember when I first sort of learned that in this class with McKee, I thought, wow, I never realized the story had to start somewhere. I thought it just started by itself. And turn the page. <laughs> so great. That was like a, a, a thought of this is the craft. This is actually how you do it. And that was tremendously empowering to me. And of course, there are many, many, many other things that you learn like that. But that was one of them. That was that was made a big impression on me. Oh, that's fantastic. I'd love to hear from you in your work as well. And it seems like you channel all your resources possible. So you study your craft, you put your time in at the desk, and you also have a call to the muses. Can you describe that? Because I love it. And I didn't really make the connection as much until I was reading Government Cheese uh -huh. with some of your background in this, you know, Carl Jungian approach to this collective conscious. But I would oh, love yeah. to, for you to talk all about that, the, the calls to the muse and what you're tapping into when you do so. Ah, it's a great question, Angie. I mean, the muses in Greek mythology were nine sisters 
the daughters of Zeus and Mnemosyne, which means memory. And their job was to inspire artists. And there was a muse of poetry and a muse of dance and a muse of music and so on and so forth. So I'm definitely a believer in that, that um, if you ask yourself, where does an idea come from? You know, if Bruce Springsteen writes a song, where does that song come from? You know, did he, you know, and, and people will tell you like um, Elizabeth Gilbert, the, the author of Eat, Pray, Love, or uh, lots of singers will t tell you that um, they, uh, ideas will just sort of materialize in their head, right? An entire song will come to Tom Waits as he's driving on the freeway and he has to like pull over, you know, and get out his phone and dictate the song into the phone before he forgets it. So, but I'm a complete believer in that for books and so on and so forth, that they're coming from another dimension. You talk about Carl Jung, he would call it the unconscious or the collective unconscious. You know, I, I like the idea of the muse. I like the idea of a goddess that comes down and tells you, gives you an idea. But in addition to the discipline to sit down, and in addition to the skill that you need to sort of learn of any kind of craft, mm -hmm. um, there's also the real payday of this is learning to open the pipeline to that other kind of mysterious dimension, to that other world where ideas come from. And um, I'm a believer that uh, uh, ideas are coming to all of us all the time. But a lot of people just dismiss them right away or it goes in one ear and out the other. Whereas I think people who uh, have become artists or have trained themselves, they're sort of tuned into that radio station all the time, the cosmic radio station that's sending you ideas and in the shower or driving on the freeway or whatever, that when an idea comes in, they'll notice it and they'll remember it. You know, I'm constantly like Roseanne Cash, the singer. Yeah. She has a thing that she says, uh, a songwriter has to always have a catcher's mitt ready because ideas are flowing in all the time and she's got to catch them. You know, otherwise they're going to keep going and wind up at Lucinda Williams's house. So I think uh, I think there's a lot of truth to that. You have to have a kind of a catcher's mitt to, to grab. And it's the same thing for any dream that we might have. Right a business that you want to start or, you know, you doing the show or whatever it is, writing a book, uh, that idea comes floating into your head, right? And you got to sort of grab it, you know, and not let it go. Along those same lines, again, I'm sure people who are tuned in right now and listening, they're thinking about all the ideas that float through their mind that they don't catch, that they don't pay attention to. And I'd love to hear your thoughts. Why not? What, when you get to see average, you know, people with unlived aspirations and dreams, why, why aren't they pursuing it? What do you think the culprit is? It's a, it's a great question. I think, uh, you know, one of my books, The War of Art, is about this, this force that I call this invisible force, negative force, that I call resistance with a capital R. And it's, I think that the playing field is not level for any of us in the sense that an idea comes in and we grab it. In fact, an idea comes in and this negative force resistance will try to knock it out of our heads. 
will try to make us forget it or will try to tell us, oh, you're not worthy of doing that. You're not skilled enough. You're too old. You're too young or whatever. Or it'll try to distract us or it'll tell us, oh, that's a lousy idea. It's been done a million times. You know, it's, and you'll never do it better than what other people have done in the past. So there's a real negative force out there, I believe, the devil, if you want to call it that, that's trying to stop us from living our dream. And when the, our, when the great ideas come in, it's easy for us to dismiss them and say, oh, that's a lousy idea, or it's a great idea, but I could never do it. I don't have enough time. You know, you talk about that in your book, and it's all of those excuses that, that we have for doing it. Whereas I think, again, a, a soft skill, but a really important skill that uh, someone like Roseanne Cash or Elizabeth Gilbert or anybody that's a, a real prof working professional knows how to grab that idea, to dismiss that negative voice in her head that says, oh, that's a lousy idea or you're not good enough to do it. Dismiss that voice and then and focus on that idea and and turn it into something real. If it's a song, if it's a business idea, whatever. Yeah, I think part of it is being awake enough to recognize that this yeah. is reaching out to me. I need to grab it. I love the opener and the uh, war of art. It says most of us have two lives, the life we live and the unlived life within us. And between the two stands resistance. That caught me. I mean, I read that many years ago and I'm like, that is it. And it seems to me that you have a passion for giving creatives and artists or ambitious folks a kick in the butt. <laughs> <laughs> why? Why? <laughs> because you do write a lot about turning pro and your other book put your ass where your heart wants to be. Like you want people to fulfill their potential. Where does that passion come from for you? You know, I just, uh, uh, it, it's almost accidental, Angie. I, I wrote the war of art just because in 2002 and did it in like two months. That's amazing. Just because friends would keep coming to me and say, uh, I've got a book in me, you know, can you t help me, you know, tell me what to do. And I would sort of verbally, I would sit with them, you know, and try to psych them up and tell them about this force called resistance, you know, that you're going to run into immediately. And you got to da, 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 da. And nobody ever listened to me, of course. Nobody ever did anything. They all blew their dreams off. Um, so finally, I just said to myself, let me just write this down. You know, I'll write like a little short book. And then when people come to me, I'll just say, here, read this. You know? Yeah. So I never expected that that book would catch on or anything, but it did. And, um, and since then, I've written a bunch of others, as you've said, but mainly I'm sort of talking to myself. It's not like I really want to teach anything or you want to help anybody. I really don't. I'm just, I'm, I'm kind of talking to myself and teaching myself and reinforcing myself in these, in the, in the, in this kind of self-discipline, you know, and, and these soft skills that I'm talking about. Because as you start to think about them, you go, oh, you know, uh, I should uh, bring that into my active intelligence instead of my passive intelligence. And what great way to do that is to write it down. So that's why I've sort of done these other things. But, you know, people ask me many times, you should take this on the road and do seminars and stuff like that. And I just have no interest in doing that at all. 
but I don't mind writing the books about it. You've got the book after all, right? Like I got yeah. the book. That's my seminar. Yeah, buy the book and read the book. Yeah. <laughs> Do you still feel resistance now? I'm sorry. Do you ever feel resistance? Oh, now? Oh yeah, ne never stops. I mean, never goes away ever. You know, co constantly. You know, it's it's a day to day thing with me, as it is with everybody. I think you know you have to sort of slay the dragon anew every morning. I think it's always there. I would agree. I think sometimes for me personally. I think that resistance shows up in being busy. I'm really ah. great at being super busy in my life to say, I'll get to this next week. I'm really good at discipline too. You know, I run every day. I have my habits that I follow, but the, the things that I really want to do, I'll get to that next week. I'll get to that next week. And then it's next week. And then it's delayed. I think let a lot of people- you, Let me ask you a question, Angie. Yeah. How did you, did you feel that your experience in the Marine Corps translated into what you can use right now skills you can use right now and if so how did that transition happen oh that's a great question i didn't realize i think until later in life that what i picked up in the marine corps would have such a profound impact on me and i think the thing that really um maybe there's a gender implication too. Like uh -huh. I think that, you know, being a woman in the Marine Corps, so there's, you know, 175,000 Marines and 1,000 are female officers. I always felt like I was fighting below my weight. And uh -huh. because I'm like five foot three and I've got a high voice that I was always underestimated. So I always kind of walked around with something to prove. So I worked really hard in the Marine Corps to earn, you know, credibility and respect. I didn't realize how much that would have value to me later in life. I have less now that I feel like I need to improve, but more uh -huh. than I need to express because that's maybe the stage of life that I'm at. And it's uh -huh. trying to find more expression. But I think that that hard work ethic and being underestimated always made me try a little bit more and where I couldn't get it right away. If I put the right amount of work and effort into it, that it would pay off. I'm an endurance runner. And uh -huh. so that's my, I think my secret thing, like I might not be the fastest, but I'm going to, over time, I'm going to take you out. <laughs> <laughs> and that's why I was reading it. Like government cheese, one of the lies that you're talking about was, and I think it's fair to swear on here since it's your words, um, that, you know, talent is bullshit <laughs> and talent is nothing without the work. And I may never have the right of talent, but I'll always put the work in. And I thought that was really brilliant of you to put that down there. Yeah. I certainly believe that from my own experience, you know, because when I started out, I was really lousy at what I was doing, you know, and that's, that's the interesting thing that we, a lot of times we forget when we're pursuing our dream is that you can get better. You know, the person you are in year X is not the person you'll be in year X plus five. If you're, if you're continually working on your craft and like what you were just saying, Angie, about sort of having a chip on your shoulder that you had to prove to, to people, you know, that you were worthy of respect. If you think about, somebody like Tom Brady, right? That got chosen, you know, what, number 199 in the draft and they picked whatever, seven quarterbacks ahead of him. And he just said to himself, I'm going to show these sons of bitches, you know, that they've over underestimated me. And, you know, he was a guy that didn't have the great uh, physical skills that so many other competing uh, quarterbacks did have, but he proved everybody wrong just by that chip on his shoulder and that hard work. So you can get better. And that's something we often forget. I love that. And thank you for comparing me to Tom Brady. <laughs> <laughs> I'll think about that tomorrow when I wake up and try to 
get my routine in. Um, there was somebody who was asking a question that I'd like to bring forth. And if you have questions for Stephen, feel free to put them in the chat and we'll get to those right now. How do you dismiss the negative voice? You were just talking about that and it just popped up. How do you dismiss oh, yeah, it? Yeah, the negative voice. How do you? And I'll, Yeah, I'd love to hear from that. To like, me, it's, it's all about action. It's about taking physical action. Like um, in, in terms of being a writer, you just sit down at this thing here and start pounding, you know? Or and I think the power of that negative voice is illusory. It's not real. It's only comes from our, the power it has is only our fear of it. So to me, it's a, it's, it's a little like jumping into a cold pool. You know, you can stand around the edge of that pool forever telling yourself, Oh my God, I can't. But if you just dive in 10 seconds later, everything's okay. Right. So to me, it's just a matter of when I say, you know, I have another book called Put Your Ass Where Your Heart Wants to Be, which is really what that's about. Put your ass, put your physical body in the spot, in the gym, out on the track, in front of the typewriter and do it. And once you start doing it, that negative voice goes away. In many ways, it's building confidence too, right? Yeah. That self-reliance ability. And again, yeah. if you have any questions for Stephen, we've got a few minutes to take them. And I've enjoyed our conversation, by the way, especially when you're talking about taking your passive intelligence into your active intelligence and doing something with it. Okay. I've got a great question up here. So you ready? Okay. Can, can you see, I don't know if you can see it, but I'll read yeah, it. Yeah, I can it. see it. Yeah. Okay. So Stephen, in your Tim Ferriss interview, you talked about denial as your superpower. How do you put up guardrails or create structure to ensure said denial is helping and not hurting your work and helping achieve your goals? Thanks, Nick, for that question. Um, I'm not sure what guardrails are mean there, but let me just tell you what I mean by denial. Um, like uh, that negative voice, the voice of resistance that comes in our head will say something. Let, let me, I'll use writing as an example. It'll say, Steve, there are 1 million novels going to be published this year on Amazon. What makes you think that something you write is going to stand out from all those things? And let me cite some famous people that are going to be writing, bang, 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 bang. They're all so much better than you, right? So my, when I use denial, I sort of block that stuff out. And I just kind of say to myself, there's nobody writing out there but me. I'm the only one that's doing it. So I'm, and that way I don't, and, and I sort of reinforce that by, I try not to have writer friends. I don't talk to other writers. I don't follow them. You know, I don't read about them in the paper or anything. Cause that'll, that'll make me feel like I don't have, you know, it'll reinforce that negative voice. So I just sort of, uh, like maybe the guardrails or the, or the denial, you know, I just refuse to let myself think of certain things that will, that will distract me. Um, I'll give you another example than that. I'm like 79 years old now. That's a big number, you know, but I'm in complete denial of it. You know, I refuse to even, you know, think about it, you know, and, and I think that that's a superpower in a way, because if you start thinking about the negative stuff, it'll just take you down a rabbit hole. So I think you have to kind of, again, it's kind of self-reinforcement, putting up a wall and not letting anything get through that wall. 
I think that's another thing that you talk about too, and maybe you've picked this up in Paris Island, is like limitations. We think that we have all these limitations and they're really constructed by ourselves. And then you discover that you can exist beyond them and beyond them some more. And so I think about that too, as you're talking. Uh, any more questions for, oh, got another one. Thanks Monica for showing up. Oh, hey Monica. So a form of resistance can be imposter syndrome. I heard you saying you realized your first book wasn't good enough and you made that moment your turning point. How does that figure in your life now and how do you overcome it? Thanks. That's a great question, Monica. I mean, imposter syndrome is absolutely a form of resistance, right? It's one of the things that you'll hear in your head. Who do you think you are to try to start a new company that makes electric cars? So they've already got the Tesla. They've already got this, they, you know, that kind of thing. And one of the things I tell myself is, and I know this from the thousands of emails I get from people who, who are dealing with resistance, that uh, a negative thought like that, imposter syndrome, is universal. Everybody gets it. I don't care if you're Leonardo da Vinci or, you know, the Dalai Lama. You're, that is universal. Everybody deals with it. And it's never true. The only answer is to just dismiss it, you know, and just say to yourself, that's the voice of resistance. It's not true. It's just a bunch of BS that this negative force is throwing at me and just dismiss it. Again, it's kind of like denial, you know, um, everybody is dealing with this and it's not true for any of us. I always found too with that, and we'll take one more question. Um, with imposter syndrome, I always, you know, start with, you know, why me? And then switch it to why not me? Somebody's got to do it. Yeah. <laughs> Somebody's got to write thing. the number one book on Amazon. Somebody's got to put this out into the universe. Why not me? Absolutely true. Oh, Tracy, it sounds like mentors have played a big role in your career. Did you seek them out or did they land in your life by chance? Great question. They sort of landed. It, it is true. You know, the, the, the book we're talking about, Government Cheese, a memoir of mine, is divided into seven books, and each one is named after a person. And they were all mentors to me. And they were, um, one was a boss that hired me in a trucking company. Another one was a guy I was uh, migrant labor picking fruit with, who I never even knew his last name, John from Seattle. And, but they... They just sort of came. I think we we run into mentors co constantly, but maybe we don't realize it, and we don't give them the credit that uh, that they deserve. I'm also a believer. Speaking of the muse and the Jungian self, that mentors are drawn to us in some kind of vibrational way, and we're drawn to them. You know, out of 10 people we might meet, but there's one particular person that we're kind of drawn to and we'll, we'll seek their friendship or we'll want to hang around with them. And uh, I, th I think in somewhere in the cosmic quantum world, m you know, mentors and mentees are drawn to each other. So it starts with putting it out there. I cannot tell you, Stephen, thank you so much for being on Bet On You Radio and your time and your care and just sharing the wisdom that you've acquired through life. And I think the message that I want to leave everyone with is you heard a story, you know, you've heard about some of your various jobs that you have, you know, working with migrant workers, picking apples, 
working in trucking, being in really difficult places and wondering where you're going to get out. But following your passion, digging into the disciplines, calling on whatever resources, be it muses, be it, you know, your cosmic radio station, finding your way through it just with believing in yourself. And so I just want again, want to thank you for sharing your story, sharing your work and everything that you're doing to inspire us all. Well, thanks for having me, Angie. It's great hanging out with you. And, uh, you know, I'm uh, my thanks to Brad Graft, our mutual friend, another Marine yeah, who put five. us together. Thank you, Brad. And uh, yeah, this has been great fun, Angie. Thanks for having me. Thanks so much. And thank you all for tuning in today. We appreciate it. <laughs>